0: What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means they'll source only clean electricity on every grid where they operate, all day, every day. Michael Terrell is the head of Google's carbon-free energy program.
1: 24-7 carbon-free energy is about getting to zero. And that's ultimately what we're hoping to achieve, which is to eliminate emissions from our electricity use altogether.
0: Achieving 24-7 carbon-free energy will require new technologies, new approaches to energy purchasing, and new policies.
1: I would say it's arguably our biggest sustainability moonshot yet.
0: Later in the episode, we'll hear more from Michael about why Google's pledge is so unique and transformative. For more information, go to g.co forward slash carbon free by 2030. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. Africa is becoming a dynamic market for clean, distributed energy. All across the continent, solar, batteries, generators, and microgrids are giving people energy cheaply and providing greater reliability in a region where many central grids remain unreliable. But that dynamism comes at a cost. Systems are complex. They lack standards, and it's often difficult for buildings and businesses to manage and integrate them in concert with an incomplete grid. That's where our guest, Ugwem Aneo, comes in.
2: So simply put, for energy service providers, microgrid operators, we give them the suite of hardware and software that allows them to monitor, manage, and control
0: their energy assets. Uguem is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Shift Power Solutions. Shift has built a platform that makes it simple to optimize distributed energy resources and integrate them with centralized power grids in sub-Saharan Africa. Shift is initially focused on Nigeria, which is on track to be the world's third most populous country by mid-century. Nearly half of Nigerians do not have access to grid electricity, while those with access face regular power cuts. The cumulative impact of power shortages in Nigeria amounts to $28 billion annually, which is equivalent to 2% of Nigeria's GDP. Shift enables everyone from small businesses to Nigeria's biggest banks to build clean energy systems without disrupting their power supply.
2: In order to essentially achieve this more distributed energy landscape, you really need the tools that will allow those energy service providers and these newer business models to scale and meet the needs of these communities and people, helping markets essentially leapfrog over traditional centralized grids and move to a more integrated distributed energy landscape to meet the country's needs and market needs
0: leapfrogging. It's a word that we hear a lot in the world of economics and business. It's when economies skip stages of technology development, creating abrupt and sometimes radical change. This is what shift is helping enable in energy.
2: We've seen it before with telecommunications, leapfrogging over landlines to mobile. We're seeing major innovation happening in the fintech space, um, mobile money space. Um, We're seeing innovation happening in the healthcare space. I think the next leapfrog that you're going to see is going to be in the energy sector. And you're going to see markets in Africa and in similar emerging markets leapfrog over traditional centralized grids and create ecosystems where distributed, clean distributed resources become the dominant energy
0: resource in the market. For Ugwem, this shift is personal. She's Nigerian-American, and early in life, she became aware of how energy could empower big corporations and disempower people at the same time. Her family is from the Niger Delta, in an area that produces a lot of oil and gas. The region has been plagued by oil spills, destroyed ecosystems, high rates of disease from pollution, and economic exploitation. As a kid, Ugwen would visit Nigeria. She remembers one trip when she was 13, sitting in traffic.
2: And I look to one side of the street and it's, you know, just tankers. You know, all these tanks and they're, I'm assuming, full of, you know, oil, gas, whatnot. And then on the other side, you are seeing a slum or or shanties, essentially. It's like kind of this paradigm where you're seeing all this money that's making people Rich and that's helping the country and getting exported and whatnot. But then you see people's real lives and it just didn't feel right. I didn't know what was wrong, but it didn't feel right. And I always felt like somebody needs to explain this to me or I need to explain this to myself.
0: As a teenager, Uguen was already putting the pieces together in her mind about the relationship between energy, the economy, equity, and the environment.
2: That moment was when I really started having an interest in the nexus of People, environment, development, and infrastructure, you know, how do
0: these things all kind of work together and and what does it mean for people? Uguem brings this people-centric passion to her work as an academic, an engineer, and a founder. Shift has raised nearly $4 million in seed funding to expand its platform across Nigeria, a country where the majority of its citizens still don't have access to a reliable grid connection. Shift has won the MIT Clean Energy Prize, the California Climate Cup, and a host of other recognitions. And Ugwem landed herself on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for energy. I spoke with Ugwem about how she took an unexpected turn from academia to entrepreneurship, and how she raised money for a concept that is not well understood by investors, and how she's scaling the company. We started in her younger years as Ukwem navigated her identities as a Nigerian and American growing up in the Midwest.
2: I grew up in a small town. Uh, It wasn't so small where you knew everybody, but small enough where you knew of all of the main families or, you know, your sibling played baseball with somebody else. So you kind of knew of everyone. And so that was really comforting and, you know, just very quiet and calm and childhood, but it was different for me just because um, I really never had like a very strong sense of belonging. Uh, And it's not just about, you know, what I looked like or whatnot, but, you know, being in white spaces and I'm the Black girl, in Black spaces, I'm the African girl. When I'm back in Nigeria, I'm the American girl uh, with this accent. That kind of feeling of never really belonging basically became a common theme throughout my life. But it wasn't necessarily
0: always a problem. It was just something that was natural to me. Do you see it as an asset now? And do you still have that sense of not belonging or do you have a sense of belonging now?
2: In a lot of ways, it's been an asset because of the mindset and the skills it's had to teach me. It was an asset in that I was very independent when it came to who I thought I could be and who I thought I was. Who I thought I could be was never really curated by who was around me because there was no one that really looked like me to make me feel like I could be that person. So everything that I am was very much coming from my own sense of like independence or certainly my parents, which, you know, I I often talk about. So in that way, it gave me a sense of imagination and creativity and my own identity that wasn't really tied to anything that was around me. And yeah, that's still, like I said, been very consistent theme throughout my life.
0: You mentioned your parents. I know your father was an engineering professor. How did his academic career influence you both at a young age, but then also later on in your own academic pursuits?
2: So in some ways, I think I was a bit of an activist, even as a child. (laughs) I don't know what it was. I I still think about it. I don't know what it was, but I hated childcare. I could not stand going to Preschools, daycares, any of that. And to the point that I basically went on like hunger strikes. So my parents would move me through different kinder care, you name it. And I wouldn't eat. They would have to call my parents. My dad would have to come and sit there with me wallet so that I would eat food, I would not take naps. And so eventually they just pulled me out because I don't know if they pulled me out or if I got kicked out, who knows. <laughs> but I got pulled out and my dad would just bring me to work with him. So I was essentially raised on at Southern Illinois University by TAs and faculty in the classroom for a decent part of my childhood. And so that kind of being on campus, being in academia was just a very comforting space, a very familiar space that also kind of influenced my
0: interest in, in academia professionally. In 2008, Uguem was thinking about her first big academic pursuit, where to go to college. She thought about journalism school. She liked telling stories about different worlds, a reflection of her experience living across multiple cultures. But Ugwem's father convinced her to apply to engineering school. This was at the height of the Great Recession, so he thought engineering would be a safer path.
2: I didn't think this would be the path, but certain experiences made me realize that engineering could be a very fulfilling profession.
0: After graduating from the University of Illinois with a degree in civil and environmental engineering, Ugwin went to work at ExxonMobil as an environmental engineer with the conviction that the best way to make a positive impact was to work on the inside. I know you later went on to work at ExxonMobil as an environmental engineer. What was that experience like, given these formative experiences that you had?
2: So I thought growing up, especially after that experience, that, okay, what I need to do, my calling now is to get inside of these organizations, be one of the stakeholders, and essentially change how we think about things and and create a sense of awareness about how we can enter communities, how we can better engage stakeholders. And so at the time I was working in safety, health, and environment, doing a lot of work around this concept of social license to operate. So what does it mean to hire locals? What does it mean to be a part of the community? there's a lot on the environmental side so doing a lot of environmental impact assessments and i thought that that would be very fulfilling work because if only someone who cared about the communities was a part of the decision making then perhaps some of the issues that we saw could have been or will be mitigated you know moving forward i didn't at the time have the thought or the foresight that you could drive change not from within the organization, but from outside. It wasn't until I got to Stanford, and that was really my first exposure to startup culture or anything like that, that I thought that my job could be something outside of a corporate or outside of the company, or not even my job, but the way that I could drive change could come from outside of those organizations themselves.
0: Hmm. As you envision that alternative future and you think about your experiences with oil, What do you hope that distributed clean energy can do for emerging economies like Nigeria that fossil fuels never did?
2: Part of it's about democratization and giving people access and the right to generate and manage resources themselves. I think when you talk about larger infrastructure, it just leaves people out. I mean, you have to talk about billions of dollars, capital, huge projects, financing that's coming from probably outside of the market, all kinds of factors that make it very difficult for certain people to have a seat at the table. And when you think more about distributed energy resources, especially in a market like Nigeria, I could wake up tomorrow and I could put solar panels on my roof and I can power my home. I can bring storage into my house. Yes, there's you know policy and you know regulatory frameworks you have to navigate within, but it gives people access and the right to certain things that we think should be just standard to elevating people's standard of living and that that's power, that's water, you know, that's and and things like that. So, I think that distributed energy resources, especially solar and storage creates an opportunity for in this case Nigerians to really be more empowered to solve some of the energy and
0: infrastructure challenges they have themselves. <laughs> Coming up, one of Tesla's founders makes a suggestion to Uguem, putting her on the path from academic to founder. First, a quick word about our partners who bring you this show. What It Takes is supported by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. We heard from Michael Terrell at the top of this show. He's leading Google's 24-7 carbon-free strategy.
1: My job is to ensure that we have a reliable energy supply, that we're doing it in a way that makes sense for the planet.
0: The corporate world is getting serious about climate change. Net zero pledges are becoming the norm. Every step towards decarbonization is important, but we need to go much further, much faster, says Michael.
1: We started out with a net zero commitment. That was when we went carbon neutral back in 2007. That's something that we've been doing now for 14 years. And we went on from there to learn how to procure renewable energy directly, to learn how to do that at scale, and now to move towards 24-7 carbon-free energy. It's really something that's become just part of our business, and I think that's the way it is with a lot of companies now.
0: Getting to 24-7 carbon-free energy means pushing the limits of corporate sustainability. It means transforming markets, and it means taking a holistic view of solutions.
1: We have to widen the aperture with how we think about electricity generation technologies and not just look at wind and solar, but look at wind, solar and storage and maybe other technologies like green hydrogen or advanced geothermal or run of river hydro or advanced nuclear. So it involves a a much more multifaceted approach to solving this problem.
0: Michael and his team are partnering with startups, nonprofits and utilities to create the energy systems of the future. It's the start of a period of immense transformation for the grid, for Google, and for Google's partners.
1: Some people have have said that this is not achievable and it's only achievable for the Googles of the world. I'm here to say that that's not true. We think it is achievable. We think it is achievable for the grids and for the world and a lot sooner than we all think. The technology and the tools and the capability to do this is there now. And so many of the listeners to this podcast have those tools and those capabilities, and we want to work with you all to find solutions and to scale solutions for this problem, because we think this is possible, and we're super excited about making this happen not only for Google, but for other companies and for the world.
0: If you want to get inspired by the challenge, or if your business can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. What It Takes is also brought to you by Next Tracker. NextTracker is building connected power plants of the future by integrating new solar technologies and advanced control software. NextTracker's tracking systems are future-proof, built to withstand the worst possible conditions. These trackers can withstand any terrain. NextTracker also has a control system called NX Navigator that allows plant operators to precisely track every parameter of a solar project in real time, schedule maintenance and command trackers during extreme weather events. This raises plant efficiency and bankability. We've had NextTracker's co-founder and CEO Dan Sugar on what it takes. If you want to hear about how he built the business, go back and listen to the third episode in our back catalog. And if you want to learn more about how Next Tracker is advancing the connected power plant of the future across five continents, go to nexttracker.com. I want to shift to your transition from academia, given your love for it, to entrepreneurship. So after your stint at Exxon, you were accepted to Stanford in 2014 to complete a graduate program in engineering. What was your first year like?
2: My first year was disastrous. Um... <laughs> Personally, there was a very big culture misfit. First of all, I came from the Midwest and then I was in Texas and working abroad. This whole like startup culture, like I'm in tech, here's my startup, I'm a visionary. All of that stuff seemed like a whole lot of BS to me. And like, you know, everybody just wanted to talk about, you know, how cool they were, how much money they were raising. And I was just kind of like, okay, that. You know, I'm I'm going to operate in the real world. You know, that's how I felt. So I didn't really feel like I kind of fit into this whole like tech culture thing that was going on. And it was tough because I knew I wanted to do a PhD. And I was also trying to find a research group or faculty that I could work with. So there's also kind of just a cultural misfit there that was going on. But what I kind of started to resist, which was this whole like startup innovation type culture really became appealing to me because it suddenly meant that you know my thought of, oh, I'm going to go back and work in the oil and gas sector was being challenged by this thought of, well, there's something else. Yes, you grew up only seeing jobs in in this industry and in the sector, and that's how you thought you could drive change, but people are creating whole new companies and coming up with ideas about what the future could look like that are completely outside of the bounds of where you are operating, and that was very attractive to me. And so I started kind of teetering and leaning a little bit more into that. And I mean, how ironic uh, that I'm sitting here having this conversation as an entrepreneur. (laughs) Um,
0: How did the idea for Shift develop while you were at Stanford? You know, it sounds like entrepreneurship became enticing. How did that then translate to this idea and eventually this company that you've built?
2: The progression was actually first an interest in the future of energy. So there was a lot, you know, back There's a lot of research and conversations and talks happening around the decreasing cost of batteries and solar. You know, everyone's so excited about you know, solar and, and renewables. And to me, I'm like, are you guys delusional? Is this real? Because where I come from, everybody's using diesel generators. So if this if this technology is so real and like, you know, so useful and renewables are going to change the world, then what's going on back home? Like, why haven't we seen complete disruption of generators, right? We're struggling with these costly, polluting, you know, frustrating assets. And you mean to tell me that here in Silicon Valley, there's the answer to it all? So- I, that curiosity had me start taking classes. I took a class actually um, that was being lectured by J.B. Straubel, the uh, CTO of Tesla. It was my first time really actually getting into the nitty gritty of like how systems work and exploring renewables and and getting into that. And I asked him about, and I don't even know if he'd ever even remember this, but I, I remember talking about Nigeria. And he's like, I think you should do like an independent study or like the class project. Show me like what the unit economics could look like for renewables and like what barriers and enablers could be for scaling renewables in a market like Nigeria. And, you know, let's see where that goes. And that was the beginning of what then turned into, well, why don't you take an entrepreneurship class? Because if the technology is making sense, if objectively systems work and, you know, you're comparing a hybrid solar battery system to a diesel generator, it's going to beat it on levelized cost of energy any day. Now there must be a barrier when it comes to either policy, business, what's the issue? So then that moved me a little bit more into the entrepreneurial slash business space. And then that kind of trickled into what's now Shift.
0: Hmm. How did you ultimately decide to take that leap from this path of academia? You were in a PhD program. Was there a moment at which you decided, I'm gonna give that up to pursue this, this dream of Shift?
2: No. I think one thing that I always like to share with people who are thinking about entrepreneurship or, you know, all this talk around like, you know, visionaries and things like that is I don't really, a lot of people try to present this very glamorous experience. Like, you know, I was like five years old and I was selling lemonade and I was an entrepreneur and I always knew I was going to be great. And I thought we were going to the moon, you know, before we went to the moon, all these kind of, you know, that wasn't me. So I wasn't ever like, oh, this is a moment. Like, I've seen the future. Like, I'm going to start this crazy big startup. It was very small, intentional steps. It was, OK, I'm going to take this class in renewables. OK, I'm going to take an entrepreneurial class. OK, I'm going to actually go try to pitch a VC and see what that feels like and what it looks like. OK, I'm going to try to get a, some grant funding. And then it was very incremental stepwise in, in that process. I do think that there are key moments where I had to make larger decisions. And one of those moments was after talking to investors, it became very clear, especially because I was in the very early days of the PhD program. I mean, I was, I was, I just finished up my credits for the master's. So they were kind of like, eh, you know, we don't want you to have, to, you know, one foot in both doors. You need to kind of commit to one or the other. So I was going to have to take like a leave of absence or leave the program altogether. And that was very difficult to me because I always felt that I was going to do research, continue in the PhD program, you know, end up back in academia at some point. And that was important to me because I had talked about representation before. So seeing Black faculty, seeing research that was being driven and curated by people of different backgrounds and diversity of, you know, faculty really mattered to me. So when I went to talk to my advisor, my faculty advisor, about the decision, and he was actually also an entrepreneur himself, he basically challenged me and he's like, if your goal is partially driven by representation and what that can mean for those sectors and the type of work that gets produced, so the type of research that gets produced in academia because of your background, then please go challenge yourself and see the type, what you could do in the startup or entrepreneurial space. At the time, I think there was like maybe 10 or 12 Black women that had ever raised more than a million dollars in venture capital. And he's like, I promise you there's more Black female faculty in engineering nationwide than that. So he's like, if you're looking for a challenge, if you're really trying to change representation, why don't you think about that? That was kind of the nudge that really propelled me towards uh, full-time entrepreneurship and working with SHIFT.
0: After that gradual process of discovery, Uguem left Stanford to start shift with her co-founder and Stanford classmate Cole Stites-Clayton. But as she talked to investors, she immediately discovered a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes about energy in Africa. Investors didn't realize how sophisticated many of these sub-Saharan markets had become, instead thinking only about rural energy access. That limited her pool of capital. As a Black woman raising money in a market that was poorly understood, Uguem carefully cultivated the people around her.
2: We are constantly hearing about you know, energy access. You know, There's millions you know, of people who lack access to reliable power. We're, look, we're looking at images of people in rural villages and, and slums consistently. We get caught up in impact or poverty indicators that we feel need to be directly addressed or measured against. And so then often what that means is we find a lot of stakeholders who might have good meaning and good intention more preoccupied with alleviating the symptoms of poverty or poor infrastructure and less about how do we attack, you know, how infrastructure is developed or the systems or the market conditions that have created such conditions. We get really occupied in optics and indicators that aren't really going to drive prosperity. I've mentioned in talks before a book that I think is a really game changer and helping people better understand this, which was a prosperity paradox um, written by my friend uh, Afosa Ojomo and the late professor Clayton Christensen out of Harvard and others. And they really kind of address the misconceptions that happen when we're talking about energy in Africa. And so whenever I'm talking about uh, machine learning and AI and software that can really drive smart cities and smart infrastructure. that can mean that a market markets in Africa can leapfrog over traditional, grids and allow distributed resources to be dominant, um, that that seems far-fetched. And it seems like, oh, well, who can afford, you know, these types of systems? Or uh, and, and when people ask me that kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, you were probably the same people a few decades ago that were like, who can afford cell phones? Now let's look at the market, right? We leapfrogged over landlines and now we're, you know, everyone has a cell phone or you, you're seeing high, higher rates there. And on the backs of that innovation, you see things like pay-as-you-go solar and you've seen innovation and, and, and healthcare and whatnot, and, and in fintech. So I like to challenge people to think a little bit more critically about what does it mean to drive impact in these markets? And the misconceptions, fortunately, I think people are starting to shift mindset. And I hope that th- these conversations and questions allow them to think a little bit more about what does it mean to drive change? And how do I invest, put money back organizations that are more interested in elevating the standard of living of people and creating prosperity and less about alleviating symptoms.
0: You recently raised this $3 million seed round. Congratulations on the recent close. I think this was just a few weeks ago. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. What was your experience like fundraising in Silicon Valley for the seed round? And how much of that experience do you attribute to being a Black woman?
2: It's very difficult to dissect the experiences I've had fundraising or being an entrepreneur and dissect and allocate what I experienced because of what. So, you know, there are a lot of founders that are dealing, you know, that are operating within the realms of like intersectionality. So I'm a person of color. I'm a female. I have a hardware company. I'm operating in a market that, you know, in in sub-Saharan Africa. So whenever I'm having challenges or opportunities, what was the factor that really kind of influenced what? It's kind of difficult to actually assess? You know, am I experiencing this because I'm, you know, I'm an African-American, because I'm a woman, because I, you know, what is the root cause there but what i can say from my experience has just been that all of those things just meant that there were or there appeared to be fewer stakeholders investors who could understand the market understand the company and understand me you have to realize that even though you might have an amazing product and product market fit you've demonstrated that with customers a lot of investors in the early stage are making decisions out of their gut And our gut is informed by our previous experiences. When they see me and they have to have confidence in me as a founder and as a CEO, what information are they operating under that's going to drive their gut? I think fortunately in the past year, we've had a lot more conversations about underrepresentation in startup space, in the VC space. And so I think that's ultimately led to us having more open conversations. And that I think certainly... I think has shifted the needle a bit.
0: What would you say to entrepreneurs underrepresented or otherwise that are raising capital? What advice do you have for them based on your experience?
2: I think my experiences actually as a engineer, female engineer, black female engineer, made my experience as a black female founder maybe a bit different than others because I again was used to not fitting in it's something that I can very I I could compartmentalize and decide when it was going to impact me or when I was going to think about it and not that let me be let me be careful in how I say that it's going to impact you it's more about how I was going to digest and accept it and, and think about it and navigate around it and so my advice to minority or underrepresented founders, it's a bit challenging because I think so much of it is about your experiences beforehand and how you respond to these to these challenges. For me, what I can say is I really focused on finding allies wherever I can get them, whether they were people of color. I mean, quite frankly, a lot of my early allies were old white men, Like. <laughs> Somewhere at Stanford, who are like, oh, I'm interested in, you know, all this kind of you know, stuff you have going on in Africa. You wanna cheer me on? You wanna you know introduce me to investors? Bring it on, I'll take it. So it was about finding allies and people who believed in me. You might notice I'm not super involved in like the social media space, at least when it comes to my work. And part of that is because there's a lot of noise and it can be very toxic. And so I really wanted to put people around me who could be allies who can be mentors, who can give me criticism, and I could take it when needed, but that I wasn't going to get bogged down in noise. I knew I was going to go to investor meetings, and they were going to talk down to me, they were going to doubt me, and I had numerous experiences like this, and early on I realized that this is not scalable. I, I will not function if I, every time I get this type of like misplaced negative feedback, not negative feedback about my business, that's fine, I need to take that feedback, I need to hear it, but like, negative things that had a lot to do with me as a person and, you know, who I am and my identity that like I needed to be able to filter that noise out and then turn back and kind of go to my advisors and mentors who can filter things out correctly for me and give me the correct feedback. And, you know, we can move through the noise and that stuff wouldn't weigh me down. And so you have to be able to look at that. It's just the world that it's just the world that we operate in and, number one thing I would tell other founders is find your allies, find people that will, you know, lift you up, cheer you on, uh, be tough on you when needed, be honest with you all the time.
0: And everything else is just noise. Talking about the business and diving in, what was the original product and business model and how has that changed over time?
2: What we had envisioned was basically deploying solar and batteries to Both consumer and commercial entities, so urban, peri-urban homes, uh, businesses like restaurants, stores, offices. Uh, But one of the challenges being that like users, this was a very different user experience than using a diesel generator. And that created a lot of problems. And so we wanted to make sure that they had a kind of a more smarter experience, a more reliable experience using inverters and, and solar and whatnot, and how all these components came together. That was a big challenge creating a more complex hybrid power system than just grid fails, turn on a generator. Generator, you can get your car technician, basically anybody to kind of hack together and and fix. You know, suddenly you have a very different user experience when you're now talking about inverters and batteries and uh, solar. And so we had built an entire tech stack. So monitoring tools for both us and the consumer to make it very easy for them to use these systems. Um, And we knew that that had actually been a barrier to adoption in the market well while we had focused so much on pretty advanced monitoring and optimization tools we realized that that was really the gap in the market there were a lot of people that were coming into the market that knew how to import panels design systems install them but it was actually in the operation side the monitoring the control side of things that there was a gap A lot of the energy technology companies historically had focused on mostly CNI type tools that just and mostly really kind of industrial utility type scale monitoring and controls that really didn't scale down to hybrid systems between, you know, five and a couple hundred kilowatts. So we decided to then shift focus exclusively to the IoT and the software side and offer that to distributed energy resource companies, uh, renewable companies, uh, microgrid operators uh, to help scale their operations. When you're backing us, it's not like backing a horse in the race. You're kind of backing Mm -hmm. the entire race because on the backs of our technology, a lot of these companies are able to scale their operations and scale their offerings. and And that's really what we want, trying to accelerate that transition
0: that's happening in the market. Who are your biggest customers today and what is the business model?
2: Some of our uh, biggest customers today are the likes of people like uh, Daystar Power Solutions, Aspire Power Solutions. So they really specialize in a newer model of more like power as a service. Um, So not only installing and providing energy assets like uh, panels, inverters, batteries, um, but essentially selling you reliability, uptime or kilowatt hours thereafter. Um, It's a really fantastic kind of game-changing model because it meant that um, the capital cost of batteries and solar was were no longer the major barrier to businesses and homes adopting renewable alternative energy compared to a generator that's cheaper up front, you know, more expensive over time. And so we're really excited about being able to support them. And But one of the challenges that you'll see in this space is visibility. So now that they have, some of them have hundreds of sites that they're managing energy assets across, they need to be able to understand how those systems are performing Is there an alarm or an error on an inverter? Is there degradation in performance? Why is that happening? How do we rapidly troubleshoot? This is directly impacting their bottom line when you're selling kilowatt hours or uptime. So to be able to use a dashboard of applications like Shift to not only see data, but Shift is actually learning and understanding and automating how the systems are operating, understanding why we're seeing degradation in solar output, things like that. That has been a real game changer for these types of customers.
0: One of the things that I think is most unique about you and Shift is that relative to others who operate in the emerging market space, particularly in Africa, I think you are the only founder that I know that is actually of the country in which they operate versus what I've seen mostly white male American founders that are developing companies that operate in emerging markets. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and you know how how is that an asset? Has that been a liability? Just some insight there would be interesting.
2: You know, there are a lot of conversations and articles and think pieces that went out about this last year and maybe the past couple of years. I'm going to focus more on my experience because I understand that with raising money in venture capital and that gut feeling we talked about, people will put money behind people that they maybe can see themselves in or that they trust or that they believe can do things. And so there might be a gut feeling that allows, and just all the other challenges that we're seeing in the VC space that would allow white men to raise a lot of money really fast to go off and do projects in emerging markets. I think if they want to do that, that that's, that's fine. For me, I think the thing that I always knew, and this was actually coming from my work with Exxon, was that this idea of, again, social license to operate. There's value in, at the most senior levels, really understanding and being able to engage culture, people. And there's also just something that's very different when it's personal. Um, When I work at Shift and I'm staying up at night, it's very much about people I know, my family, a country that I love and belong to. And so it kind of changes how I think about things and how I navigate certain spaces and how I think about our customers. And it also changes how they think about me and talk to me. I should caveat that by saying that I'm sitting somewhere on a spectrum, to be honest. You know, I grew up partially in the U.S., so I'm a Nigerian-American. So there's even some privileges that I have that I think other Nigerian-born and fully raised founders do not have. So I'm I'm cognizant of that. But I think that if I, if ever I was uh, in the VC space or an investor, it's not about, okay, well, we'll eventually go hire some, you know senior african staff to deal with the local stuff no it's it's very foundational to who the company is I was sitting and talking to a founder of a company that's you know trying to do work in our space you know stereotypical white guy whatnot not from the market and not that they're not doing amazing work let me not I'm not dogging that but it can be challenging because we were trying to talk about names of major players in the market and like kind of like what they were up to and who they were about and you know you can't you couldn't have that dialogue you know it's It was so much about the tech and product. And I think that can be very challenging in the market. Lastly, I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, some of the challenges that the Niger Delta and Nigeria more broadly faced and the challenging relationship um, that these communities have had with the oil and gas sector has been because of who had seats at the table when. And I think that it would be a mistake to not think that those same systemic issues that happened with the oil and gas industry could not happen as we see an energy transition with the renewable energy sector in these markets.
0: You mentioned this earlier that entrepreneurship is romanticized. What is it actually like, especially in the early days?
2: It's really being a captain of a ship. It's really being a pilot. And yes, you have a lot of people around you, but like, you know, like at the end of the day, no one else is responsible for how this ship will sail except for you. And so the weight and the burden of that responsibility, knowing that if I mess up, people won't pay their bills or won't have school fees for their kids, you know, like that is, it's, it's a weight that, you know, maybe we don't talk about as much and doesn't get glamorized as, you know, when you think about entrepreneurship, but when you're, you don't get the luxury of always just having these bad days where you're going to shut down and I'm going to make a mistake. My mistakes have so many consequences for people and when you really care about your team and the people that work with you, it feels very different. It's not like when I worked in corporate and if I make a mistake, somebody in HR or the company, they're not even going to feel it. Or maybe they will, but it's like, it's not my responsibility to make sure that somebody's kids have school fees. Mm-hmm. And so that is the cha- Those are the challenging times that you might feel isolated because you just know you don't, you're not going to get to take this nap, or the trade off of the snap or slacking off or making mistake or not being diligent is much bigger than, well, maybe I'm not gonna raise this money or get a bigger return, or maybe I'm gonna lose this customer. it's, It's not about you. Entrepreneurship, you always see the CEOs, you see me, you know, I'm sitting here today. I'm sitting here because I have a team that's working right now so that I can sit here and have these conversations. That's what you're constantly thinking about, and people are going to see these interviews and think it's so glamorous and fun, but, you know, it's, it's, it's people work. It's, it's life-changing work.
0: Despite the pressures of entrepreneurial life, Oogwem has steered shift to some big milestones, like raising millions from investors like the French oil giant Total. Uguem may no longer be working within the oil industry, but she's still harnessing its influence and capital to build a clean energy future. A lot has changed since Shift's early days, but Uguem is just getting started.
2: I remember sitting in the audience with my co-founder Cole and being like, oh my god, one day we're going to be sitting on a what it takes conversation and we're going to talk about how at one point, you know, we had... We literally printed out when we had like two hundred dollars in our bank, and we're like, "Ah, "I don't know if this is gonna work, but let's like save the statement." So like, when we're on what it takes, you know, in like a couple years, we can talk about how far we've come. So I know Cole's gonna be watching and listening to this, and it's kind of like we are a long way away from two hundred dollars in the bank account,
0: but there's still a lot more uh, that we're excited to do. I'm going to close with our high voltage round. The first one is always my favorite, which is Uguem. If you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why?
2: If I could be any animal, I would be some type of bird that migrates over the seasons. I think I've said this before because it'd be fantastic like doing like bad weather, bad seasons, like, you know, just go on down to, you know, South America, you know, chill there for a little bit, come back as needed the states or wherever else um so yeah i'd probably be a bird like it
0: what inspires you
2: my family most importantly my parents just Mm -hmm. knowing their story and their journey really makes me feel like nothing in my life is a coincidence and um, that everything is happening for a reason
0: Mm -hmm. other than yourself to whom do you attribute your success
2: Oh, man, this is going to seem just so cliche, but it's my parents. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so so much my parents. Um, they've been consistently my biggest cheerleaders and advocates, even as a child. Everything that I thought I could be has been because they made me see it in myself, even when I didn't see it in the world. When have you failed? I'm not pausing because it hasn't happened. I'm pausing because it's happened a lot. <laughs> Oh man, I think there's been times that I've let people in my personal life down, my significant others and friends and loved ones, just because I'm not prioritizing things correctly in life, not prioritizing things well. So I'm always very grateful to my, my friends and, and you know, my partner who forgive me when
0: things get out of whack. Mm-hmm. What is the best investment you've ever made?
2: Well, okay, best investment. I mean, sure, my education, like, yeah, it's great, it's what it's what got me here. I think like more practically, literally, I was just telling my uh, partner this weekend that I spent a lot of money on those blue lights that attract like insects because I we work out in my garage now. And so having that, like anyway, that's that's a terrible answer, but it's been money, it's been money well it. spent. because uh, <laughs> I can work out outside, no mosquito bites, it's great you know, zapping all the insects all the time. They don't fly in the house when I come in the house. Spent a lot of money investing in them because it's like restaurant grade, you know, fly zappers. And that's just recently what came to mind. I'm sure there's better investments, I
0: don't know. (laughs) My house, I don't know. I love it, you're like, my education was great, but it's the (laughs) fly zapper, the mosquito zapper. I think if, if if it's what is enabling you to do your work, then it's a good investment. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
2: I would secretly love to produce reality television. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a big Real Housewives junkie. I love terrible, trashy reality TV. I do like documentaries as well. So maybe one day you'll <laughs> see me like as an executive producer for a Real Housewives franchise coming near you.
0: <laughs> so good. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe?
2: You know, I I thought that if you work really hard, like you will get what you deserve. Mostly because again, thinking about like school and having a dad who was a professor, it's study really hard, you'll perform well. And it it always related. It didn't matter too much as long as I worked really hard at school, I was going to perform well and therefore like the fruits of my labor were a result of my labor. I no longer believe that's true. I believe that there's so much in the world that influences your outcomes and you should still work very hard, but I don't always believe that things are
0: fair or just. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be?
2: It would likely have to do something with education, making sure that, even though, I mean, you'd think I'd say something about energy, but education just played such a critical role in my parents' journey and their right to, and their access to equality, Genuine education was a game-changer for them. And I think that it's not just about an educational system. If people were empowered to understand the world, how it works and why things work the way they do, they'd be empowered to drive change. But I think that information is often withheld from people, and therefore it greatly
0: impacts the trajectory of their lives. When was the last time you were scared?
2: The last time I actually was scared was... Sitting uh, with my mom awaiting the verdict uh, in the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd, I really thought that the outcome at that point was going to be quite telling, telling about the state of our country and would indicate a lot about the aftermath and what would ensue. And I was nervous. I was very nervous about the future of the U.S., the future of the people of color in the U.S. and uh, my future children's uh, position in this country. What is your
0: best quality?
2: Honestly, working on leading teams, working with and leading teams. I just know, I feel like I do a really good job of trying to see people and meet them where they are, make them feel good, make them feel like they have a place that they belong. I always like to say that I want people to leave me, leave meeting me better than how they met me or at least feeling better than how they met me. And um, when it comes to working with my team and working with people, I really try to
0: care and see people for who they are and meet them where they are. I can attest to that. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because...
2: I've heard this question, so I'm like, I have too many people, too many responses that I've heard before. Companies fail because they run out of money. Companies fail because the founders no longer like are committed to the vision. You know, companies fail because there's no product market fit. I think companies fail because they run out of money and they run out of money because either the founders no longer have the vision, cannot find a product market fit or cannot make things work. Success is? Peace of mind. When you haven't been able to sleep through the night, and then you can, you know how much you appreciate being able to have peace of mind and sleeping through the night. And to me, that peace of mind is, oh man,
0: uh, invaluable. It's yeah, that's happiness, that's success. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have.
2: Asked for more money sooner. Oh man. My, my One of my first mentors was like, Go out there and ask for a million dollars. Stop with this whole, like, I want to raise $50,000. Like, you need a million dollars to go raise it. And, you know, at the time, to me, that's a lot of money. But if I would have known back then to ask for that bigger check, boy, would I have.
0: If the world knew me for one thing, it would be.
2: That I was a catalyst in the energy transition uh, in markets like Nigeria.
0: I'm most proud of.
2: My team. I'm most proud of Shift. I'm most proud of the people we have. By far, and if you know anyone from Shift's team, uh, some of the most honest, hardworking people, genuine, committed people
0: um, that a founder can ask for. Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is?
2: Grit. Grit and maybe a little bit of resilience mixed into there. Um, It's not a fun experience most of the time. And it's probably falling down as much, if not more than sometimes getting up and like the big wins, it's, it's a lot. And you have to be able to take those hits, take those punches, get knocked down and get up stronger, better, more resilient. Yeah, it's great.
0: Yeah. Uguem, I am honored to know you, have so much admiration and respect for you. Very grateful to, to be an investor in Shift and, and an investor in you and grateful that you were willing to come here and share your journey with us on what it takes. So thank you. Thank you. Uguem Aneo is the CEO and co-founder of Shift Power Solutions. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building a carbon-free future. Their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank Google for their support for the show. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next-generation clean energy with its 24-7 carbon-free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.f-u-n-d. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed our episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is what it takes.